I feel like a, a discussion with you, Leon, about augmenting your reality would go down different routes than, than it would with most technologists. That's probably true. <laughs> I'll own that. <clears throat> LSD. <laughs> <laughs> I thought of it as augmenting your reality with the reality of other people. It's kind of Have you seen his talks? This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on Ruby developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average Ruby developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the Ruby Rogues link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired to get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Ruby Rogues. This episode is sponsored by CodeShip. CodeShip is a hosted continuous delivery service focusing on speed, security, and customizability. You can set up continuous integration in a matter of seconds and automatically deploy when your tests have passed. CodeShip supports your GitHub and Bitbucket projects. You can get started with CodeShip's free plan today. Should you decide to go with a premium plan, you can save 20% off any plan for the next three months by using the code RubyRogues. Snap is a hosted CI and continuous delivery that is simple and intuitive. Snap's deployment pipelines deliver fast feedback and can push healthy builds to multiple environments automatically or on demand. Snap integrates deeply with GitHub and has great support for different languages, data stores, and testing frameworks. Snap deploys your application to cloud services like Heroku, DigitalOcean, AWS, and many more. Try Snap for free. Sign up at snapci.com slash rubyrogues. This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the provider I use to host all of my creations. All the shows are hosted there, along with any other projects I come up with. Their user interface is simple and easy to use, their support is excellent, and their VPSs are backed on solid-state drives and are fast and responsive. Check them out at DigitalOcean.com. If you use the code RubyRogues, you'll get a $10 credit. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 220 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Jessica Kerr. Good morning. Avi Grimm. Hello from Tennessee. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv. A uh, quick little reminder to go check out Rails Clips and also to go check out Angular Remote Conf if that's your thing. We also have a special guest this week, and that's Leon Gersing. Howdy, how's it going, Hal? Are you coming to us from Texas or something? <laughs> no, I come from all over, so maybe a little Texas in there, but uh, mostly in my upbringing was in Florida, so that's where I'll my y'alls and twang uh, from. I was in uh, Texas yesterday, so. Ooh, whereabouts? Fort Worth. Hmm. Oh, okay. Where are you now, Leon? Right now, I am in Chicago. I'm director over here at uh, Dev Bootcamp now. So I'm helping uh, people augment their realities. Yeah, that's what we have on the the docket to talk to you about. I'm still not completely clear what that means. Nobody knows. Who invited this guy anyway? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It was probably at some bar. I was told to Here I am. (laughs) Push the Skype buttons. That's it. I, I just answered the call. You guys called me, you know. Uh-huh. <laughs> Is that always your excuse? Typically, yeah. Yeah. That's how I usually get employed. I say, oh, no, I don't know why I'm here. You called me. <laughs> nice. 
<laughs> that is a really good strategy. Just walk in. Yeah. In one of your talks, you talked about just, you know, getting up and moving on to another desk. You could just move on to another desk in another building and be like, hey, you called me. Absolutely. I have this philosophy that, you know, wherever you are is where you belong. So if you don't feel like you belong where you are, move on somewhere else. Totally fine. Then you can get those two things in sync again. Totally. Yeah, Leon, you sound like someone who appreciates the opportunities that appear in front of you. I think we do a lot of looking past them. And part of introspection, part of thinking about who you are as a person is about paying attention to the stimulus around you and not necessarily getting overloaded and overwhelmed by the infinite abyss that is your own reflection. So yeah, I mean, if, if you feel like you're trapped and the world in front of you is not the world you believe you should exist in, then there are a bajillion other little universes around you that you could simply participate in. Such that there is a reality right in front of you and you can augment the one in your brain by looking more closely at your surroundings? Sure. Looking more closely at your given surroundings, listening to people's voices you haven't listened to in the past, uh, taking time to, to hear rather than being next to talk. Absolutely. All of this new information can allow you to augment how you see the world, how you participate in it, figure out what your, your actual goals are as a human being. Yeah, I was just trying to do that this morning. How did that work out for you? It is surprisingly difficult to nail down, I gotta say. That's interesting about the goals because I see like having specific goals as in conflict with grasping the opportunities that are right in front of me. I think they can be if you're obtuse to new stimuli. I think sometimes people like craft a goal and they think that the path is crystalline in their mind and then they don't react when new variables enter the game. But seeing what's around and deciding how you want to navigate through it is perfectly acceptable. I, I would assume that people would like to plan, at least in the moment, for how to get from across the room, right? There's planning and then there's a plan. I prefer planning over a grand plan. Hmm. Yeah, I, I tend to approach things along the lines of, okay, you know, where do I, where, where do I want to wind up? Where do I want to be heading? But I don't set that in stone. I mean, people ask, you know, where you want to be three to five years. And, and I don't think anybody really is going to have a great answer for that because it's just hard to know what life circumstances are going to be then. But at the same time, it's like, okay, well, if things are kind of the way they are now in five years, where do I want to have advanced to? And what do I want to be doing? And, you know, how does that line up with what I value? And I'm constantly reassessing that. But then when I break that down into, okay, so where do, where do I need to be in a year? Where do I need to be in three months? You know, then it's like, okay, I can kind of see a path forward from here that's going to get me where I want to go. And then I just don't, I commit to the, where I want to be further down the line, but I'm totally willing to change that on the map. How often does, does your journey take right turns emotionally? Com complete I mean, right turns? I mean, uh, in the sense that a lot of people will, will take a complete right turn on, say, a job, a technology, a platform, a framework, just something like that. But the end goal is still maybe the same. Like the, yeah. the emotional goal may still be the same. Like how often do you find, and this for any of you really is, how often do you find your emotional goals aren't quite aligned with what you're doing? And then how do you change those? What's an example of an emotional goal, Leon? Because I don't think that's the kind of goal that most people ask us for, but maybe it should be. So for me, a, a lot of my conversations tend to be somebody says like, I feel lost or I feel alone. 
or I feel separated or I'm not part of the group. And so they have an emotional goal of finding their place, not feeling like they're swimming upstream. And there are lots of different ways you can approach those. Those are so conceptual, highly conceptual goals. It's, it's tough to actually narrow them down and isolate on like a path to achieving that. Like if I'm socially, let's say, more introverted on the introverted spectrum, it's very difficult to say, well, I'd like to expand my network, right? Or I'd like to feel a part of the group without like tools that, that get you there. So that's what I mean by an emotional goal. Yeah, it's it's hard to really look at those goals and like you said, know the path forward because it's not... It's not something you can really measure. It's not something you can really say, you know, okay, now I have 10 more happiness points or whatever. Um, <laughs> and so generally, you know, because I, I do this, you know, I, I look at where I'm at and I'm like, you know, yeah, I'd, I'd like to be more involved in these kinds of things or I'd like to make more friends or, you know, spend more time around people. But I have to quantify it down to something. And the thing is, is that from there, I usually do pick a path. And so mm-hmm. I, I look at something that is likely to yield the results that I want. You know, I read a lot of books. I talk to a lot of people. I listen to a lot of podcasts. And so I get a ton of ideas. And so I'll, I'll pick one that seems likely and I'll put that one out there on the horizon so that I can march toward it. And then, you know, after a few months, cause that's usually how long it takes me to figure out if that's really taking me where I want to go. After a few months, if it's not the path, then I'll try something else. So you're iterating. Yeah. I don't see any other way to know that unless I can know the future and I can't do that. So I, right. I have to make the best guess I can with the information I have. And then I recognize that, you know, down the line, I'm going to have more information. This isn't the way I'm really liking these aspects of the path I've chosen, but maybe I need to veer left a little bit because I'm not getting this or this out of it that I wanted, or I'm learning, you know what, that point on the horizon that I thought I wanted to head toward. It turns out that, you know, that emotional thing that I wanted, that emotional payoff, it's not as important to me as this other thing. It's the same as in software. Yep. You think you know what you want to write, but you really discover it along the way. Yeah. But at the same time, I find it really difficult to get what I want unless I'm actually deliberately heading toward it. And so I kind of have to operate the way that I do. I think it's an interesting notion trying to quantify the qualitative data. And, and I think emotionally that those qualifiers are things that you can actually measure. Like you, you made a joke about having 10 love points. But I mean, over time, I mean, we've called these things like burnout, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, daily, like, oh, I don't have enough in the tank. Like, it, and it goes down further and further and further until you have to make a choice, like a real pivoting choice is going to the job that I've, I've been bringing me diminishing returns emotionally, actually helping me achieve the goal of happiness. If that's the goal, if the goal is complete and utter misery, maybe you're right on track. Like, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but if you get up against the wall, then those are a lot of times the most painful decisions to make. Absolutely. Where it's like, I can't take this job anymore. So, you know, I'm leaving behind coworkers. You know, maybe there are aspects of this job that are going to get me something that I do want. You know, my wife's comfortable. My kids are comfortable, blah, 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 blah. You know, what if I have to move? What if I have to, you know, and so the, there's all this other stuff that comes along with it. Sometimes you don't have a choice, but sometimes, you know, if you can find some compromise on the choice before you get to that point, it's less painful. Right. That point of being at a dead end emotionally yep. isn't usually the best point from which to make the choice of where to go next. I agree with Leon. I think you can quantify these happiness and stuff. I mean, as long as it's you quantifying it for your purposes, you know what your metrics mean and 
uh, you're not going to game them because nobody else is looking at them. It's all for you. We hope that you're not going to game them. Dialing in emotionally is very, very important. And having the ability to do introspection, to know if you're actually lying to yourself, is, is just tantamount to, to actually solving some of these emotional issues. Good point. There's a book written by Dusty Phillips, who's a Python developer. He's written at least one Python book. It's called Hacking Happy, I believe, where he talks exactly about this. He pulled himself out of depression very gradually using techniques he learned from programming about measuring and having retrospectives with himself. And he he did that because you often forget. It's one of the reasons that year-end reviews are so useless because you really only remember the last few weeks. And having data that you past you has provided to present you because past you could actually like remember what they did today, whereas present you doesn't remember accurately from months ago. That data could actually help tell you, oh, wait, I'm really sliding downward. Maybe I should stop before I drive myself into a wall. Absolutely. Monitoring your behavior and then getting feed on that specific part of it will right into your emotional health and the trajectory and the arc of your emotional health. But feedback, just as you pointed out, is only relevant in a timely fashion. And it has to be about behavior. It has to be about the things that we are seeing or experiencing or doing and not uh, ego attacks or even super ego attacks on, on the self. Uh, so like doing this one thing, like going to this job causes certain amount of pain. Going to that user group where they make fun of me and they other me and they don't allow me to speak and I feel like I'm not heard is detrimental to the cause of like trying to be more included. So at that point, it's like, yeah, you might have tried the right approach, but you might have to pick a different group. You might have to go find it or start one or start a different group. So when you were talking about how you can kind of quantify the unquantifiable on your own scale, it, it kind of made me think of when you go to the doctor and they ask you on a scale of one to 10, how bad is your pain? Yeah. <laughs> You know, because it's not, there's no real pain points or whatever. It's in your experience, is this the worst you've had or the, the least worst you've had? And how how is that working for you? You know, whatever you're doing, how is that working for you? You know, are, are whatever scales you're you're looking at, are they getting better or worse? For me personally, keeping mindful about it is making it easier to understand when I'm approaching crisis. So between therapy and some of the things we do here at Dev Bootcamp and just like my personal relationships, I try to have like a, maybe it's not a one to 10, but I have like this weird scale of from mud to unicorns, like where, <laughs> where am I? Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's measured in pixie dust and sandwiches. Like I want to know, not together, right? They're corollaries. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I need to know basically on a day to day, like, am I in the range? Like, am I going in the direction that I like? Am, am I feeling safe? Am I feeling supported? And can I do my most creative and innovative work today? If I'm putting in the opposite direction, I should know that daily. I should know that even hourly. And then when I have that indication, it's time for me to react to the feedback. So if the feedback is external, let's say someone's treating me poorly then it's time to find a way to communicate with that human being so that we're both able to help one another move forward emotionally. But sitting on it, waiting, thinking it's going to get better, it's like not writing code you're afraid to write. It's it's, it's never going to happen. Like you're going to have to confront that error message sooner. Got to get to it. So when do you know that you need to react? I'll give you an example. Uh, around every day, about 2.30-ish, I hit a wall. And I it happens every day. I'm just kind of tired. So I, I kind of cope with it in different ways. So do I just need to know that I need to compensate at 2.30 every day? 
or do I need to react and, you know, make a bigger change in life to make that go away? So you have now a control. The control is at 2.30, I feel low energy. I feel lethargic. I feel that I cannot produce at my most creative. So don't try. Mm -hmm. Try to do something else. What would then service your emotional needs at that time? It may be your physical needs. <clears throat> if you spend most of the day sitting down, perhaps, which a lot of us do, then maybe 2.30 is your time to go walk down the street and chat with a hot dog vendor. Or to, you know, meet the people that, that are, you know, in businesses on your floor or whatever that happens to be, even if it's just commune with nature. I think anything to get your mind back into the part of being a human and less about like compartmentalizing the tasks that quote unquote have to be done for someone else, um, will inform both masters, if you will. That's also an example of accepting the reality that's right in front of you. Instead of insisting that you should be working at 2.30, you should be productive at that time, recognize that you're not and ask, what can I get done or what can I do that has some benefit that I'm capable of doing at 2.30? Yep. Absolutely. Like trying to see this, the, the reality versus the simulation is paramount in understanding your own metric. If you cannot see the real world for what it is giving you, and you're living in this simulation or this like dual reality, then all of your metrics will be skewed. Then your pain meter may always be at a 10. And unfortunately, we, all, we often wait too long before we even do the introspection, before we do the work of trying to say, oh, I'm trapped. I only have these two directions in which to go. Oh, wait a minute. I'm not trapped at all. I could easily just not do this work and get up from my desk and take five minutes off and then come back and maybe I'll feel different. I want to ask about another uh, scenario. And this one is, you know, a little bit, I guess, across a, a larger term than just the day, right? So how can you tell, I mean, we all kind of go through seasons in life, you know, sometimes some periods of life are better than others. So how do you know if it's just kind of the general ebb and flow of life versus that this really is kind of an upward or downward trend? So for me, that largely comes to even patterns in a larger scale. So Let's say people who experience even uh, like a biological seasonal depression may find ways through either like technology, medication, support to manage the expectations of that kind of cyclical experience. Uh, and then that's something that can just be simply managed. Now, if it's just every month I tend to get like really restless then I would work that into my schedule. I would work that into my life. Now, if you can't predict it and it just comes out of nowhere, you still have to confront it. I still believe you have to deal with it. And in that case, try something radically different. Try changing the way you get to work. Try anything, really. If you've seen any of my talks, I'll be, you could go from you know, changing your job or changing a different book that you write to uh, mind-altering substances like caffeine. like Whatever you need to change your experience, I think that provides you a nice juxtaposition for the current path you're on. I mean, humans love to systemize things. They love rituals. They love the ability to predict how their day is going to go. And they really do a poor job when that ritual is effectively augmented by something they couldn't control. But the expectation alone causes that kind of anxiety. I think being able to free yourself through mindfulness, through practice, through observation and introspection of the expectation uh, allows for greater growth possibility. What are good ways of 
becoming aware of those trends. Um, is, is journaling something that you recommend? I mean, what, how do you become aware of that stuff? Journaling is a powerful tool to understand your conscious mind's thoughts at a given time. Journaling without going back and maybe looking at it be very difficult, be a bit moot. It's data. So if you're collecting the data, that's good, but it's difficult to also like, so for when I'm journaling, I also like to try and say, today, here's like something normal that happened. Got coffee, hung out with Mike out front. I was in a really bad mood and I didn't know why. And then maybe talk about everything else. So that when I come back to refer to it, that metadata exists about that day. But besides journaling, meditation is a really good way to, to present in mindfulness, as well as interacting and listening to those around you. Uh, a lot of time, especially in American culture, we're, we're constantly seeking to entertain one another with our dialogue, rather than actually letting it be organic and happen naturally. Simply just listening, not having this, like letting listening and mindfulness be part of the conversation and not something we're constantly trying to avoid. It doesn't necessarily it. make a great podcast, but it is. <laughs> <laughs> that's really interesting. You point out that entertainment is an avoiding mechanism for mindfulness. It does feel like we spend a great deal of effort avoiding being alone with our own thoughts in this culture. Absolutely. I think we spend a great amount of time avoiding being alone with our own thoughts, but we also spend a great amount of time taking the silence out of even group communication. There isn't a whole lot of just friends hanging out and sitting. Well, in, unless you count dinners that really go to everybody on their phone. Uh, maybe that's the quietest they become. But then we're not mindful of the present. We're kind of looking off to the future or to some other FOMO that we're dealing with in the context of our current social situation. You use the word FOMO. That's, I just fear, encountered fear, that. Fear of missing out. Oh, that's interesting. I'd never heard that one. Yeah, I oh, heard what? it for the first time only yesterday. <laughs> I had to look it up. You were missing out. <laughs> missing you have FOMO, FOMO. You know, right. I have totally had to let go of that because there are so many opportunities in the world. That is so true. And so much potential and realizing any of them is to allow the others to collapse. Just got to get over it. It's funny. I get to watch the FOMO in, in action every day because that's exactly what's going on with our younger children when they don't want to go to sleep. You, know, you can oh, tell they're yeah. desperately tired and just rubbing their eyes and miserable, but they're terrified of missing something. Absolutely. And, and that's effectively us on our phones. We yeah. stop stop caring about the here and now and we just think, oh, there's a better conversation that could be had somewhere else. Or if I was at that other place that I wanted to be, if I'm not at that conference dealing with those people, if I'm not at that job with those friends, I'm not on the path. And that misses the entire point. I think that misses out on, you should have fear of missing out on those in front of you. So FOMO causes missing out. Yeah. We're back to... That's ironic. Yeah. So we're monetized. I think we've monetized distraction to a greater level than ever before. I mean, I think a lot of social software these days has realized the uh, the monetary potential in distraction, you know, and in image crafting, you know. So this whole idea of, you know, your Instagram or whatever, building the image of, of who you are and of what you're doing um, and of what you're eating and who you're talking to and where you are. You know, it's very attractive, this idea of building an image of who you, of what you are. And you spend more time building that image 
than interacting with at least more real stuff in front of you. If you're building an image of who you are instead of becoming who you want to be, then one will always be solved and the other will always be neglected. I got to say, I finally returned to a, a daily meditation practice in the last couple of weeks. It was surprising how big a hump there was to get back into it. I mean, it seems like the sort of thing I've always enjoyed it. I've always felt, you know, felt good for doing it. And it seems like the sort of thing, well, you know, good things feel good. So why wouldn't I do it? But it turned out that there was an enormous hump of anxiety to get over because I'd been pushing. It's like pushing this ball of concerns and thoughts sort of ahead of me constantly with all this distraction that I'd been practicing. So mindfulness became steadily more and more threatening as that ball got bigger and bigger because I knew that the moment that I actually sat down and started a mindfulness practice again, I'd have to work through that ball of anxieties and and what am I not doing and what what's the next thing and et cetera, et cetera. I think of one way to kind of curb that is just remember that that, that experience is simply you're just being aware of it, that you're effectively the rock in the in the stream. You're just letting the stream sometimes it comes by in a torrent and sometimes it's just a trickle. And that's fine. They just like happen. Just let them come up. Let them be there. Let them have their minute. React to them emotionally and then let those things go. I think mm-hmm. we kind of try to compartmentalize them and overcome them like they're giant obstacles that we have to face and slay like demons like we have to have perfectly crafted plans on the avenue and road to happiness or enlightenment or whatever it is that that an individual is searching for but the human mind just sometimes needs a minute to just sit in it just let it come let it go over not be in control of it we spend a lot of time crafting reality in software we spend a lot of time having control over all of the knobs and dials but those aren't very human ways to live our lives organically, we want to just let it happen, be a part of it, co-mingle, interact. And then what we do in technology a lot of time is kind of remove ourselves from, we stand above, we are the ones playing, you know, rule maker, game master for everything. Yeah, that's, that's very true. And that's something that's been on my mind a lot lately is that conflict between the mindset that we typically bring to software. I won't say that we always do, but the mindset that we typically bring to software versus the mindset that's, I guess, healthier for life outside of it. I, I have some feelings that the, the mindset that's that's healthier for life is probably actually healthier for dealing with software too. But I would argue that as well. I think we need to become far more organic in our approach. Uh, I think we have to to interface with the qualitative at the same time as the quantitative and stop looking at software as purely a pragmatic exercise. There is certainly a, prag- a level of pragmatism and planning and, and dexterity and skill that goes into it. But negating the creative element, the spontaneous element, the interactive element means that we largely live out of balance. And I'd like to see those things kind of work in concert with one another. Do you have some thoughts on, on engaging with those elements more frequently? I think teams should play more. Um, I think that there are lots and lots of ways that we could introduce more just, I don't know, juvenile fun for lack of a better term and more in the sense of like a, a child plays uh so when i was a child at least then all the kids basically played in and they were there weren't play dates there weren't regimented times where people got together it was like leon get out of the house and come back when it's dark so boys girls of all shapes creeds colors and sizes were just in the neighborhood and they just goofed off and they just played and they just came up with cool games and just dealt with the reality around them to interact with one another and kind of see their lives through someone else's lens. 
Uh, I would like to see more teams doing things like that rather than saying eight to five, you're locked into this desk or in this chair and that's all you're going to do. I mean, if you're pairing, for instance, like you've got two people, like make a game of it, play with it. Like how can we play with this particular feature? Like 30 minutes of playing could easily lead to a, a, a mountain of productivity and pragmatic work that, that follows. So certainly play is definitely at the top of my list on that. And, and also expanding the network of people that you, you play with. So if everybody in the room is starting to sound and look the same, maybe even not look the same, maybe the ideas are all just looking the same and sounding the same. Uh, it's time to infuse some new ideas. Maybe take the group out, like go out as a developer and see how other developers and other disciplines are doing it. You may not totally agree, you may not like it, but man, you might see something really cool or something completely different that you hadn't even considered. Uh, all of those things can help jog that creative, that innovative spirit, rather than like looking at another checklist and saying, oh, if I do this checklist, then I'm perfect. Yeah, checklists are definitely the enemy. I've been struggling with that at work. If you have a list of goals for a project and that's success, then you can never succeed any further than that. Yeah. Leon, do you think we should maybe encourage more Easter eggs? Oh, God, yes. Please, Maurice. <laughs> yes. I want Konami codes and everything. Like, <laughs> let's do this. No, I think we, there should be lots of ways for us to discover what we're trying to do. Uh, if, if you're somebody that's like creatively trying to lay a path for somebody, yeah, put an Easter egg in there. Let somebody discover it and hunt it and then reward them and celebrate the fact that they found it. I mean, that's a lot of fun. Or even just while you're making a UI at work on um, Hack Friday, when we're allowed to work on what we think is important rather than what's on the checklist, one of our people put a pony. Uh, he made a UI for this app. And when you click the big red button, if it works, a pony flies across the screen. Yes. And there's so much joy in that. And yes, some people make fun of it, be but because it was done on Hack Friday, they don't like criticize him for wasting time on it. But at the same time, he's exploring the UI framework. He's learning more about development. Everyone is happy. And now we enjoy pressing the big red button. Yeah. yeah. It's and now you're expecting that somebody else will surprise you at some point. That is your new normal. So instead of, oh, here we have another Friday. What are we going to do? I have no idea. I've seen a lot of like hack Fridays. And I've been a part of companies that had these like 80-20 rules where the 20% largely became about nothing. It became about doing nothing because I didn't want to have to explain to the rest of the crew or I was embarrassed or I couldn't find something interesting or creative to do. I mean, that usually just reeks of I was afraid of being judged. I was afraid of really exploring it. I was afraid of taking a risk. But that's where creativity lies. It lies in the risk. The thing that we want to find out, it, it lies in exploration. So leaving breadcrumbs, leaving behind artifacts, letting others experience the joy of the thing that you made, isn't that why we're all doing this anyway? Like it doesn't have to be all one or the other. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I was just reading something about how you mentioned following breadcrumbs and it made me think of something I was reading where, you know, in, in cognitive studies uh, about how people learn, they learn by following trails. You know, they, you, you, you have a trail that you walk down and then if you can cause somebody else, not, not force them, but cause somebody else to walk down that same trail, then they, they learn something. If you can just, if you just like smack them with the map, they don't learn anything. Um, <laughs> but, uh, so learning, you know, learning is always about sort of causing somebody else to reiterate a path that you walk down, uh, in their own minds and reiterate 
you know, a series of discoveries, a series of, of surprises like that. Absolutely. And the more we're rewarded for walking down new paths, the more excited we are to change the ones that we're currently on. It's sort of in that same vein of surprises, happy surprises. I, a lot of people have talked about the Ruby community as being uh, about joy and about happiness. But the more I've thought about it, the more I've realized that I think it's a bit more specific than that. I think a lot of programmer computer communities are interested in programmer happiness. But Ruby, what's interesting about Ruby is the whimsy that it uh, kind of started on. Do you see that as well? Oh, God, yes. Absolutely. I mean, like, is that is that a specifically interesting aspect of it to you? It was the reason that I was most curious to join Ruby as a community. I've been a part of several communities and still am. Uh, and Ruby is probably the one that I'm going back home to. Uh, and a lot of it is because of that whimsy. I don't necessarily think it's it's isolated in in Ruby land at all. There's certainly a, a large amount of whimsy in the Python community as well. But yeah, I I I do think that a lot of our whimsy comes from the fact that a lot of our tools, programs, libraries, etc., are homegrown by people who didn't necessarily have to do it for a paycheck. They did it because it was something they wanted to explore. It allowed them to kind of tease out the reality of what they were doing now and come away with a different kind of artifact. One of our seminal books in Ruby, Wise Poignant Guide, is just madness, and it's it's brilliant madness. And I haven't seen like a, a poignant guide to C sharp, although I would love to see somebody do it. I think that would be really fun. But, and maybe there's new forms of whimsy that I'm totally missing out on. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder, lately I'm playing around with Elm, and Elm is the language that is, well, it's for the UI, and I'm not much of a UI developer. But that's a great outlet for whimsy for me, because I don't usually enjoy that. It's actually being kind of fun. And yet, Elm is a lot like Haskell. If we could add whimsy to a language that's a lot like Haskell, that would be amazing. Well, learn you an Erlang for great good and you learn you a Haskell for great good brought a lot of whimsy to those particular materials. And that's I, true. I really enjoyed those two things. And in fact, made it easier for me to comprehend various functional programming tenets. Just because somebody was talking to me like a human. They were t- talking to me like a child who wanted to play with a language. Uh, it didn't have to be this thing that follows the same 26 chapter learn X in 24 hours format that has become the norm in programming. That's a good point. I often remark that learn you a Haskell doesn't teach you how to print to standard out until chapter 13. <laughs> but the, the whimsy in Haskell is not in printing to standard out, unlike many languages. <laughs> totally. It's a really good example. I was thinking about this recently, and I kind of decided that we have a moral imperative to be whimsical. Amen. I'm into this. Well, because, you know, we much of what we do is creating realities. We call it modeling reality, but really what we're doing is we're creating realities. Um, same things humans do all the time. And I think the reason it's, it's so important that we hold on to whimsy is because we can't risk taking ourselves too seriously. Oh, God, you know, yeah. these, these realities that we model, these, these models that we come up with, whether it's a whole paradigm of programming or whether it's a model of a domain or something, you know, I think that's something that as programmers we're sort of particularly in danger of is deciding that the map is the territory. Oh, yeah. And you mentioned something earlier, Leon, that as developers, we tend to think of ourselves in the, the game master role, the being in charge of this reality that we're creating. And my reaction was, man, that sounds like a lot of responsibility. Yeah. No wonder we're so stressed out. And then if we think 
we have all that responsibility and we're being very serious, then we start to think we're right all the time. Whereas if we introduce the whimsy, we're remembering that we're making this up. And so we can yeah. continue to make it up. Absolutely. Being right is an illusion as well. Knowing all the answers is an illusion, even if it's your world, even if you've created it. Like this notion that you just can't be wrong or that something spontaneous can't happen that you've never seen before. The minute that you've locked down and say, no, I know what's right, this is it, that's the minute that you stop painting outside of those lines. That's it. You've trapped yourself into being right. Congratulations. Now you're right forever. Now the best you can do is check the boxes on a list. That's it. And that to me, like that sounds like something I'm not interested in. That sounds like a world that ends immediately where it begins. I want to keep exploring it. But it's so tempting, at least to some of us. I mean, because we like to systematize things. Sure. You know, sure we, get, we get a charge out of systematizing things in the program, and then we want to systematize, you know, things outside of the program. Sure. I mean, look at the cities that we've built, right? I mean, mm. we've built these big monuments that have, that have no basis in organic life. They, they're complete simulations of life itself. And then they have silly rules of where you can and can't walk and what you can and can't do. And, and then there's somebody that we paid to stand in a uniform and tell other people for us what they can and can't do. And the rules are important to maintaining order in the system. And we have to always have them. And that's the way it is. I think that kind of thinking traps us. It doesn't allow us to see past it. It doesn't even allow us to see the truth that, that this all was built by another person just by another human being who just thought it was a good idea and got a bunch of other human beings together to do it. So we can change it. Everything that you see in front of us, everything that we can imagine, it can be changed. You just have to simply be willing to participate. Yeah. I think you have to kind of own the idea that you are an author of reality, right? Of you know, course. You're not just living in this world. You are also manufacturing it. That's right. And that doesn't just mean manufacturing content for other people to read on their social networks. Right. It's almost like, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like the, the VM inside the VM inside the VM. Of course. Right now, we are the ghosts in the machine. And everything we do, and especially everything we build, either reinforces those social norms or invites questions. Bingo. And whimsy invites questions. Bingo. And play. Yeah. Yeah, play is a safety to question. One thing I notice about my kids when they play with each other, especially when they're when they're in bed, supposed to be sleeping, but they're, they're talking, 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 talking. They're practicing conversations. They're practicing life. Absolutely. And they're Absolutely. exploring. Yeah. And they, and they do it with like, they have boundaries and rules as well. Children are really good at that. They're really good at like just coming up with whatever the boundaries are right now and not marrying themselves to it. It's like, okay, in this play, you're the sales guy and I'm the person who's buying stuff. Let's go. Oh yeah. Yeah, they'll spend half an hour arguing over which superhero each of them is and which powers they have. And then the game actually lasts two minutes. Bingo. It was establishing <laughs> that mutual shared alternate reality that was the real game. That's it. Which, you know, when you look back at, at uh, some of the stuff that people like Kent Beck and, and some of the, the small talkers and XP types, you know, have re they really said, like, that's how we should be planning software you know, to kind of bring this around to software again, is these little playful sessions of, of putting ourselves in the position, uh, in the perspective of notional objects in the system. Not necessarily, you know, software objects, but just, you know, notional actors in the system and play acting. Yeah. I Look, I'm a child of XP as well, and I, I actually love these ideas. I love the notion of just, like, creating your, your dollhouse 
and putting all your dolls in it and just having fun. Like, oh, okay, I need a chair so that they can have a conversation about something. Oh, sweet. I'm going to make a tea set. Of course. Why wouldn't we do that? Why wouldn't we just play with it? Why does it always have to be following some constantly like normative, idiomatic process for developing software? It should be a lot more fun. What if inside our teams, we each had designated superpowers and you're the person who knows where that stupid programming is finding its configuration variables. <laughs> and yeah, sure, I can do that. I mean, I'm strong and can lift this car, but it'll be easier if I ask you to help me because that's your power. We could define a reality within our team the way kids do. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I think you should try it. This would just be fun. Just knock it yeah. out. Give it a shot. See what happens. What's your superpower this week? <laughs> Dealing with the clients. <laughs> oh, that is a superpower. You can have that one. <laughs> Leon, you said you're at Dev Bootcamp now, right? That is correct. Um, as of last May. What kind of things are you trying to instill in, in your students? A lot of what we're talking about, we're effectively, they, when they're here, they've got nine weeks to go from very little understanding of programming to somebody you could hire as a junior or an apprentice into your teams. And a lot of them are coming from different disciplines, completely different trades, completely different backgrounds, and programs something that, that they've always wanted to try, and then they come in and try it. So they're effectively having to redo all of their instrumentation for gathering feedback on how they're progressing, how they're proceeding as a human being. So a lot of the things that I try to instill are that the minute you're writing software, you're a software developer. You may be at the beginning of your journey, but you are now a software developer. And that means you can ask as many questions as you want, and you will ask them over and over again. And I, I try to defeat the ideas that there is a hierarchy to this process, that there are these immaculate seniors who happen to know everything that you have to get permission from in order to do creative things. And that that's not the case, that we have wisdom in the group, that we have a community of people who want to help. But really, it's on each individual to understand what they're trying to bring to this world and to go out there and do it. My idea is hopefully that everybody leaves this group empowered, that they feel that they are now a member of our community, that they are here to help others and to make the world of software a better place, that they're not outside of it, that they are part of it. You mentioned senior developers as having wisdom, not authority. Correct. I like uh, that. I want that in a leader. There's a stark difference between the two. And our best ideas in software tend to be just given away, tend to be the things that we share, things that the experiences that we have, we either give away in free materials or paid materials, but we largely want them out. We want them somewhere else. Our seniors are people who have experience in the form of wisdom. They've solved a lot of problems. And one thing that we sometimes often forget is that you can be a senior and you can be a junior at the exact same time. It isn't just one permanent role that after a certain amount of years that you suddenly fill. All of my greatest mentors were people who, who loved to dance in both that kind of senior-wise camp, but also dial right back down into the I'm new and I'm playing uh, modality. Like I'm just experimenting. I'm just having a good time. I just want to see the world again with fresh eyes. I think those are the kind of people that I'm hoping continue to feed our community. And we honor that kind of playful wisdom exchange rather than, oh, that person's been here for 20 years. Clearly, they're the best. Clearly, their ideas are the ones that I should make my ideas. Hmm. Ah, I think we have a lot of ideas. And then we're at this, the beginning of this. 
Software's new. Software's fresh. 50 years in, right? Largely. So how can we say that we have anybody who knows exactly what's going on? We're still figuring it out. We're still building. Amen to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the best not, we can do is iterate. That's it. That's it. And I hope that we will continue to encourage those coming into our community to take those chances and take those risks. Because a lot of times they'll get the more set in our ways and patterns we can become. And we just don't want to look outside of the box. We want to know that our way is the only way. And I think that's a trap. So I encourage people to continue to push up against that boundary and push the edge. You mentioned mentors, and, and I know I can't swipe your mentors from you. And we <laughs> all have just, you know, in different people that we meet throughout life. I'm curious, though, if there are some books that you particularly recommend that you found a lot of wisdom in. Well, uh, anything by Huxley has driven a lot of my social wisdom. And the perennial philosophy is probably one in particular that I revisit from time to time. Uh, as far as like the wisdom of ancient texts, of, of long-time texts, I have been a fan of philosophy for a very long time. So there's plenty of books along the way. Things that we're talking about in this one, French postmodernist Jean Baudrillard is probably really hot, like dialed into this particular topic that we've had today, uh, especially around reality and simulation. So uh, maybe his books, America, Simulation, Simulacra, would probably be good reads as well along those lines. But right now, I can't think of a contemporary book that has got me going on that. But I do have some other ones uh, are not necessarily in mentorship exactly. But one that I've just picked up that's really kind of baking my noodle is this book called Play, uh, How It Shapes the Brain, Opens the Imagination, Invigorates the Soul. It's talking largely about some of the concepts that we're talking about here, about like engaging with others and, and how we can tap into those things that we want to unlock within ourselves just by simply like getting back to the organic notion of play, of exercising our minds and physical bodies. It's fun. But as far as like going out and getting mentors... To me, that's a, that, that's something that's best done in real life is best like going out, seeing people who are walking paths that you're interested in walking and having a conversation with them. They may not have time for you. They may not be willing to mentor. They may not, they may not even see themselves in that, that place, but just connecting with them, taking them out to lunch, just going out to the park, shooting the breeze can really inform the path that you're on and, and make understanding your signposts and guideposts much clearer. Very cool. Maybe that gets back to our, our goals of the future. If you see someone who is where you think you want to be and you just go talk to them, you may learn whether that's where you want to be and also some ideas of how to get there. Absolutely. All right. Well, I'm going to push us uh, into picks. Before we get to picks, I want to take some time to thank our silver sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Code School. Code School is an online learning destination for existing and aspiring developers that teach us through entertaining content. They provide immersive video lessons with in-browser challenges, which means that each course has a unique theme and storyline and feels much more like a game. Whether you've been programming for a long time or have only just begun, CodeSchool has something for everyone. You can master Ruby on Rails or JavaScript, as well as Git, HTML, CSS, and iOS. And more than a million people around the world use CodeSchool to improve their development skills by learning or doing. You can find more information at codeschool.com slash rubyrogues. Why don't we have Avdi go first with picks? All right. I don't have any um, any technical picks today. Uh, one of my picks is a place. Uh, if you ever find yourself in eastern Tennessee with children um, and time on your hands, for instance, if you're staying in the Smoky Mountains, 
I highly recommend Dollywood Splash Country. It is the newer and wetter half of Dollywood, the famous Dolly Parton theme park. And um, we took the kids there uh, the other day, and it was fantastic. And kind of getting back to one of the things we talked about in the episode, one of the things that I loved about it, like many water parks, uh, it has plenty of rides, interesting slides and water roller coasters and, and, and rapid rides and whatnot that you can stand in line for. But like fully half of the park is just freeform play areas, like giant pools with interesting waterfalls and grottos and things to play on and this vast tower of fountains and slides and other water amusements that kids can just sort of climb around on. And it, it I love that about it because it was a remarkably meltdown free day. We had, you know, four kids there and they could just run around and play and not stand in line for hours. And uh, yeah, very cool. I wish I wish more amusement parks focused more on freeform play and less on the uh, less on the rides. So that's a pick. The other pick is is really more of a concept. The concept of normality. Uh, as some listeners may be aware, at the beginning of the year, I basically achieved all of the goals that I'd been working towards for the previous 15 years of my life, which kind of culminated in a in our move to Eastern Tennessee. And I did a lot of thinking about what that meant for me around that time. I did some writing about that, which is on my my journal that's up on the web. And and one of the things that I was thinking about is that I didn't want the sense of emergency and the sense of struggle that had sort of pervaded the previous 15 years. I didn't want that to just carry on. I didn't want to be living in emergency indefinitely, even though I'd achieved the point that I'd been working towards uh, in all those years of feeling rushed. And I actually, I actually set a date for myself. I set a date that I called Normality Day. It was like the day after my birth, the Monday after my birthday or something like that. And, and, and I was going, that was going to be the day that I would force myself to be normal, to have normality rather than, um, you know, rather than that living in that sense of, of urgency, even if there were still boxes around, even if there's still left stuff left to unpack. And I totally blew it off. Um, I totally blew that day off. And, you know, just because I felt like, oh, there's all this stuff going on. I've got this travel that's going on and I'm freaking out and I don't have enough time, you know, and at the time I sort of comforted myself. My wife uh, helped comfort me, you know, with the thought that, you know, I just couldn't achieve normality that soon after a move. But I realized shortly after that event that uh, that was the wrong move to make. I, I made a mistake there because here's what I realized about urgency and about overtime. If you think you're in crunch mode, then you tell yourself that, well, I can always work until seven and then, you know, and then go have a quick dinner and then put the kids down and then I can always go back to work. I can always, I can always work until 4am tonight. And the funny thing about that is that sometimes that means you get less done because you have this permission to work late. And so you can actually procrastinate because you have this permission to, to work overtime all the time. And it was killing me. My uh, spending too much time uh, on social media was was playing into that. And I realized I was actually procrastinating as a result of that sense of urgency. And so I kind of went back to my original idea. And I've been doing this crazy thing where I try to work eight hour days. I'm actually like working more or less a nine to five. And, you know, I line up how much stuff I want to get done. I try to work approximately six to eight hours worth of work. I, I, I estimate my work and and I try to work approximately a day's worth of work, but, but then at, at five, you know, five, five thirty, I go up and I hang out with my family and, uh, and I don't go back to work. 
And I think it's good. I think it's been good for me. It's certainly a different mode of living. I, I can't say that it's for everyone. I can't say that, you know, everyone should just live in normality because honestly, it was those 15 years of struggle that got me to the point that I could do that. But uh, it's I think it's it's good to at some point say, OK, I'm going to draw the line here. And, you know, everything after this, I start to take in stride rather than treating every single thing as an emergency. So sorry that was so long, but that's that's my pick. Cool. Very cool. Definitely something to think about. Jessica, what are your picks? That was pretty deep, Bhakti. I'm still thinking about that one. I just blogged a blog post on Ruby Rogues. I know. <laughs> <laughs> you opened your mouth and a post came out. I'm going to cheat and pick my own talk. <laughs> I, That's fair. <laughs> when I was at Polycon last month, I did a talk, uh, a lightning talk. It was an impromptu. Just that morning, I decided, hey, I could give a lightning talk this afternoon since my talk is over. And I did. And it was on uh, meritocracy and how if you ever think you've achieved it, that's terrible and you're doing it wrong. But yet you can aim for it. And it's four minutes. I'll link to the video in the show notes. That's it. Nice. Um, I'm going to throw a few picks in here. I just spent the weekend in Fort Worth, Texas. It was kind of a fun little town, but uh, I, I really want to just do a quick shout out to uh, the bunch of programmers that I had dinner with on Thursday. It was just a lot of fun, and it's nice to be able to connect with people, and uh, you know, especially people who know that you know that you have something in common with. So uh, John and Proctor pulled that together, and it was it was just a lot of fun just to see where people are at and what they're struggling with. And, you know, sometimes how we help with Ruby rogues and some of the ways that we could help in the future with Ruby rogues. And so I'm just going to pick that. If you, if you have any feedback, if you want to get in touch with me and talk about it, I'm actually working on something where I can connect with people who listen to the show just because I want to, I want to see what, what people are doing. I want to see what Ruby rogues means to you. So keep an eye out for that. I'm also going to pick Periscope. Periscope is kind of a, a video broadcast thing that works through Twitter. So if you follow me on Twitter, you might want to follow me on Periscope because I plan on posting some things or talking about some things on Periscope here over the next few weeks. And then I met a whole bunch of people at Podcast Movement, and that was a lot of fun. Uh, one of them was uh, Jamie Tardy, who has a podcast called The Eventual Mil Millionaire, and she interviews millionaires. And it's, it's really cool. So um, I'm going to pick that one as well. I'm just really enjoying the topics that come up and the, the way that these successful people approach life. So finally, my last pick. If you don't know, I uh, have a mastermind group that we record the calls and we post them as a podcast every week called Entreprogrammers. And we're putting together a retreat. Uh, we figured out about what it would cost. And that's what we're charging you. So if you are interested in coming and hanging out with myself, Derek Bailey, who was on a week or two ago, John Sanmez, who wrote Soft Skills, he's also been on the show, and Josh Earl, who's another friend of ours. We're going to be out there. We're going to be talking business and code and stuff. So if you want to come be part of that for a few days, this is in the middle of October. I think it's like the 14th through the 16th, but don't quote me on that. You can go find out more if you go to entreprogrammers.com slash retreat 2015. We're also taking a few days, just the four of us, to, to do kind of a a more in-depth retreat with each other. But we want to help other people who are trying to do business or do code. So if you're interested in that, go check it out. Um, there are only 10 spots. So if you want to come, you got to go and, and sign up pretty fast. So yeah, so those are my picks. Leon, what are your picks? So my picks, I'm going to narrow them down to be kind of into your picks as well, into the three of your picks. So on the meritocracy, something that I think is interesting 
a book called Quiet by Susan Cain, C-A-I-N, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking. Uh, talks about the hidden superpowers inside of introverts and kind of ways to identify and help uh, ingratiate their ideas and and contributions into an extroverted world. So no, the meritocracy thing to me is a very interesting correlation where if you don't actually have a way to give everyone an equal voice, then what you have is the same hierarchical nonsense that looks like uh, it, you call it meritocracy, but you still have the same hierarchical problems. So uh, highly recommend that book by Susan Cain, Quiet. Uh, I mentioned it earlier, Play, uh, How It Shapes the Brain, Opens the Imagination, and Invigorates the Soul. Of course, that, that rolls right into the Dollywood Splash Park. I mean, come on, free form, good times. A little musical uh, thing. Um, I was, uh, uh, we were talking Shel Silverstein earlier before the show. So I wanted to make mention of an album that maybe some folks would like to go check out. That's Freakin' at the Freaker's Ball by Shell. That's always a good time to throw into to your iPod or whatever listening device you got. And then last but not least, a work of fiction called The Circle by Dave Eggers in a dystopian future, very, very reminiscent of the futures that uh, Huxley uh, like to imagine back in the 40s and 50s. This one's a reimagining for the modern world that could be off in our future. Uh, l- real fun read. I think uh, a lot of your uh, listeners would enjoy it. That's it. I got like 15 more. I mean, if you want like a bajillion <laughs> picks, you can have them. But <laughs> no, that's awesome. All right. Well, thank you for coming, Leon. It was a really, really interesting discussion. Oh, thanks for having me. It was a real pleasure to be here. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. We'll wrap up the show. We'll catch you all next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join the conversation with the rogues and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at rubyrogues.com slash parlay. 